How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, that's great. You deserve every round of that applause. Every round, Mark. Well, it was real. It felt real. It felt real. It was real. It was great. You know, maybe one day we'll listen to the whole song. We you know? have. Have we listened yeah. to the whole song? I think Somebody? so. Oh, well, I hope people liked it. Tom's here. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dr. Joe. Your other co-host. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Dr. Joe. Going to be even better tomorrow when I get my Facebook account back. Yes, what happened, Tom? Ugh. So I am a moderator for a meme page run by a buddy of mine, Justin Wang. It's a very large meme page, uh, about 10,000 strong. Wow. Probably, probably six, six, 16,000 strong, and it's a public group. So anyone who wants to join can join. But we have rules, and one of them is... If you don't like someone's post or you take issue with something, you think it's a bannable offense, you message a mod. You do not flag that post because that gets the group put on Facebook's arbitrary no-no list. Mm. And it can get it auto-deleted. It's happened before. So uh, we all, the mods, make reminder posts saying, hey, remember, if you see a post you don't like, don't flag it, message a mod. And someone flags that post because... <laughs> To say, to say don't flag something, don't report something to Facebook, well, that's against the community standards. So, wait a seven-day... Hmm? Let's back up a second. So you're a moderator on a mean page? Meme page. Oh. Meme, not mean. mean. No, meme. Meme. <laughs> that was for our listening audience. But that was good. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the clarification. And uh, shout-out to Justin Wang on YouTube. Great channel. But what is a meme page? A meme is like a, a picture, right? It's a, a picture with a comment. I'm not even sure how to define that word anymore. It's so widely used. But, I mean, this is a continuation of the Richard Dawkins discussion because he's the one who coined the term. I believe his definition of it was a unit of cultural memory. It's, that's very true, Tom. It's true. M -E -M -E, it's M -E, right? Yeah. M-E-M-E, meme. Yep. But it's what you will see on your social media feed where someone puts a picture of somebody and it has a catchy little phrase that goes along with it. That is defined as a meme, right? That could, that's certainly a meme or a Shiba Inu. A uh, Shiba Inu? What which is, is a dog. That you never seen Doge? It's just a picture of a Shiba Inu giving like a, a, a little side eye, like it like it knows something. It knows what you did. That's Doge. It's different, isn't it, than what, what Dawkins was describing? I would say, but probably even not that much though, because isn't it what he predicted? That we're just we we project so much meaning on a single image that it can be used over and over and over again, no matter the context, and we'll understand it. In, in essence, yeah, I mean, he was he was talking about it in the same context as a gene, 
which replicates itself. And so a meme, as you say, is a cultural replication of something that goes over and over again. But certain memes fizzle out. Um, for instance, the meme 22 Skidoo, which was from the 1920s. Nobody really uses that anymore. And there may be memes that are happening now that we may not be using later. But it is the idea that you can transmit large amounts of information through small images, right? Which is basically what many language really is. I mean, that's what language would be, is you try to, to encapsulate small things. But these are pictures. And what do they say? A picture is worth a thousand words. Right. right? But the memes now, I, I think of the memes, are, what's the difference between a meme and a GIF? Well, GIF's just a file format. That's just the moving picture file format. Precisely, but it's a moving picture meme, right? So doesn't that take on a whole nother imagery that it's just, it's actually a whole series, whether it's like four seconds or five seconds, and that becomes now an image that people can use to portray things like um, astonishment or laughter or disgust or any number of different things. And you see these little images that move of people that are making some expression. So, well, so I mean, to an emoji, right? So you can go and capture the emotion through picture. Is that a meme? Is meme the umbrella of all of that? You know, what so, I'll do is I will, if I can, if I can find Dawkins' book, because I know I've got it someplace here. I thought I had it on my bookshelf. We'll just look it up. But that was, Rich Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene. We spoke about this a little bit last week. And it was um, a very, very powerful book that really was, I'll be honest, atheistic, didn't believe in God, said the only thing that all, all living organisms are designed to do is to get their genetic structure into the next generation, their DNA from one generation to the next. And that the DNA was selfish. It was a selfish gene. All it was interested in was replicating itself. And of course, that came into direct conflict with the whole idea of altruism, right? Which we spoke a little bit about last week as well. Is altruism real? Mark was saying last week, if you do something nice for somebody else and you get a reinforcement, isn't that potentially selfish? because you're not really doing something for somebody else you're doing something for that self-gratification of having done something for someone else was that more or less what you were saying mark yeah yeah right well not well yes ish yes ish yeah but but the idea that that all we are as an organism is merely almost with with no free will trying to just simply get our genetic structure into the next generation, I think is not everything. And that of course, is the I am is saying, no, that's not what's going on. That's part of what's going on. That's part of the biological domain, but it's influencing the three other domains of your home, social world, and the way you see yourself and the way other people think and the way you think they see you. So the idea that, that we are that selfish um, is really, I think, a very ancient idea. I don't think we're that selfish. I think there are times that we all can be, but I think that there's part of us as a social animal 
that can't just be selfish because if you're only selfish eventually that's going to catch up to you and you're not really going to be trusted in the group because you will not have respected and valued other people because you will be taking and taking and taking does that seem to make sense hmm. yeah and the i am is saying wait a sec for some people that's the best they can do at some point but i haven't met anyone in all my years of living or in psychiatry who is only selfish, who is only doing things just for themselves. They may be doing things to help people in their immediate circle and certainly doing things to sort of promote themselves. But at some point in their life, they did something for someone. So. So that that sort of gets into a little bit about what we're what we may be talking about tonight because I know Tom's got some clips. Remember, guys, we're, we're trying this new format. And I'd love your feedback on it. We've had so many incredible guests. I mean, just the most amazing people with so much to say, and we have this limited amount of time. So I thought what I'd like to do is is curate have Tom curate some of the highlights of some of those interviews, and then just dig deeper into them dive deeper through an eye and lens. Uh, and tonight, we're going to be talking about addiction and substance use. And we've got a couple of clips that, that I'd like Tom to play. Uh, we'll start with whichever one you want, Tom. And let's just start thinking about the deeper meaning of what our amazing guests have been saying. So, Tom, what do we want to start with tonight? Well, why don't we start with a repeat guest, fan favorite, Shana of Drug Story Theater. Terrific. The first Let's time I realized what we got. I had a problem. Um, I had had and a really ben, long could, um, problem with spice. And I, my counselor at school mentioned that I might have a problem. And I was like, no, no, not not me. I don't have a problem. I can give it counselor up. Counselor from what grade? Um, I was in high school. I was probably ninth grade at that point. And your counselor knew you were using spice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, and so I had given up spice but what I did was I put down one, one substance and I picked up alcohol and um, once I started to have a problem with alcohol I realized that it wasn't like the substances it was me that had the problem because once I picked up alcohol I did the same exact thing that I did with spice where I started drinking every day every morning every what were every you drinking day. uh whiskey whiskey yeah wow okay yeah. before school mm -hmm. and during sometimes after counselors and teachers weren't kind of like hmm that you're behaving kind of strange today. Can we um, talk about that for a second? A lot of times I didn't go to school knowing that they'd know. Just cut? Yeah, I just wouldn't go. And would they call home and say, uh, uh, <laughs> wasn't in school today. Shana. Shana. Where is Shana? <laughs> where is Shana where today? Shana? Does anybody um, know where Shana is today? I, they kind of gave up calling my mom after a while, but um, in the play I also mentioned it. Um, I went to an alternative high school, and which was really a good fit for me because um, I had a lot of anxiety issues, so it was a smaller school. But um, my home school spent, like, they paid for my placement there, and they threatened to take away my placement so because I missed, like, six days out of or five four days a lot of days of school of the week and um that's when i started to get help because i was like oh maybe i'll just push them off a bit and like be like see i'm getting help like don't kick me out of school because right. i realized i needed to be there in order to graduate so but then i kind of got into getting sober once i went into treatment it's strange how institutions will play hot potato 
with kids struggling with addiction. It seems like I can't speak to Shana's school system, but it sounded like they were kind of passing the buck. Like, I, I, I don't, I can't deal with this. I'm not equipped to deal with this. So I'll pass it over to you. And then she stopped calling. Well, she, she certainly felt like they gave up on her. Right. I mean, in her own words, they, they gave up calling my mom. And I don't know if that was because mom wasn't paying attention or they gave up. I mean, what's that going to do to your self-esteem? Right. Yeah. And that, that really is, is part of the whole abandonment of folks with addiction and with mental health issues and with so many things that somehow we, we will turn our back on them and say it's okay. I mean, that's, that's the part that really is, is quite astonishing, is how we can justify turning our backs on people because we have, and we were talking about this last week as well, we sort of lump them into a group that is disordered or is not part of our group or is somehow a person that we so mistrust, we don't want them anywhere near us. And so we pass them on to someone else. And yeah, from an IC point of view, I mean, how does that make you feel? And how does that then contribute perhaps or perpetuate the very desire to use drugs or alcohol? I mean, if the brain is going to choose between something, it really wants pleasure. There's nothing wrong with feeling pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure that you get, which is a problem from a brain point of view. So I'm so glad that you picked Shana to start this discussion off because Shana, um, remarkable young woman who absolutely was determined to turn her life around, um, had enormous anxiety, uh, had uh, a struggle with depression, used drugs and alcohol as a way to avoid some of these feelings, and began to realize that every time she used a drug to avoid a feeling, she began convincing herself she wasn't strong enough to deal with those feelings. And so she would use again and began creating the very feelings she was afraid that she couldn't manage. And what I'm especially proud of with Shana is that here, a young woman who had so much anxiety was able to get up in front of, in essence, 30,000 people over time and share her story. And that is empowering because the people in the audience reminded her every time that they were listening, every time they applauded, they reminded her of her value. And that over time felt better than drugs and alcohol. And I, you know, this young woman is now married, working, she's got a couple of kids and she's been sober for years. So what's, what's the lesson here? I think the lesson is once you begin to really understand why someone is doing what they're doing, and you begin to wonder with them instead of worrying, you can reflect on what's going on in the four domains and why the best they could do was use drugs. Now, spice, um, just for people who know, we're not talking about cinnamon or nutmeg or something. We're talking about a chemical that was sprinkled on basically incense, organic incense, a plant, but it got you so high, it was almost like tripping. And the people would become very aggressive as well. It wasn't like just, you know, it wasn't smoking weed. This was a whole different thing. And it was, it was legal 
and sprinkled on these things that you bought as incense in gas stations, and anyone could buy it. And then people began to realize how dangerous this drug really was, and so the FDA banned it. But when you ban a drug, you're actually banning a chemical structure. And so what the people who were creating spice did is they would literally change one molecule, like maybe a carbon or, or a chloride or a sodium. And now it's a, different, it's a different chemical. And so the FDA had to ban that. And I'm not exactly sure how they did it, but they've been able to get it off the shelves completely, which is a very good thing. But that spice, we saw a whole, whole wave of it at Castle uh, when, when I had my adolescent substance abuse program. And these kids were like really, really hurting. I mean, it really had a long-term effect on their brain, their cognitive skills. They were sort of dazed most of the time. Some of them, you know, wound up with kidney problems and other problems because it was not just a benign drug. And would each new chemical uh, scratch the itch left from the last? Yeah, exactly right. It scratched oh. the itch. It would like feed that, that little dopamineergic part of your limbic system and, and say, oh, thank goodness, here it is. And it was incredibly, incredibly addictive as well. And we didn't really have, you know, many, you know, direct drugs or medicines to help with the withdrawal. So it was usually what we call sort of comfort medicines just to help ease some of of the anxiety and some of the sleep problems but we don't have like the same sort of detox protocol that we do for for alcohol or benzodiazepines or opioids but but the real issue here is you know why do we turn our backs on people who are in such need and then are astonished that they don't come in for treatment you guys know the numbers, right? Go ahead, Tom. You were going to say something. Well, I, I know that there is the philosophy of, well, it's not tough love. It's just love to turn your back. It's like, I can't, I can't reward you with attention watching you destroy yourself. I guess I can sort of follow a line of logic there. But what do you think is going to happen when you turn your back? Yeah. It, it, especially if they're hurting for money, if they're going through the last sense for a hit. Uh, there are a few very unsavory job options that people don't last long. Mm. If you get my meaning, that's it's a dangerous thing to abandon someone who's that that addicted. It is, it is, uh, and part of what's happening in the brain is that the person with the addiction is shutting down the IC domain. So think, what does that really mean? If somebody stops caring what other people think or feel about them, they stop caring what other people think or feel. And that, that then, in a person who has their IC intact, that elicits all sorts of responses. Anxiety and anger and sadness and the idea that somehow you are devaluing me. When what's really happening is because of the dopamine oxytocin interaction, remember oxytocin, not oxycontin, oxytocin is basically the, the brain chemical of trust. So the dopamine is interfering with trust. It's not a surprise 
that people don't trust a person with an addiction. But I want you to understand the reason. It's not because of the moral issue. Addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. It's the way the brain works. So when somebody else's brain is stopping and cutting down and inhibiting the ability to care about you, of course, you may want to turn your back. It makes sense. But then you got to step back and say, wait a second, what's happening in the four domains? Because I know this person. I know something's going on with them because if their I am right now is to turn their back on me, that doesn't make sense of who I know they are. That has something to do with the way the dopamine is interfering with the oxytocin in their prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain. And of course, this is what we teach in drug story theater. You know, drug story theater, Shana was a major part of drug story theater. She was one of our first kids. Uh, and she was right in there doing the psychodrama and helping us create the very, very first show. And she was amazing. So for those listeners that don't know what Drug Story Theater is, Dr. Joe, what, what is Drug Story Theater? The Drug Story Theater is my nonprofit where we take teenagers in the early stages of recovery. We teach them improvisational theater. And then we use psychodrama and they create their own scripted shows about the seduction of, addiction to, and recovery from drugs and alcohol. And they have been performing these shows for middle schools and high schools. So the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. And in between each scene, the kids step out of character and they do PowerPoint presentations teaching the audience about the neuroscience of adolescent brain development and why it's at such risk for addiction. And all the kids in the audience take a pre-show neuroscience quiz. All those questions are answered in the show and then the kids take the same quiz after the show. And we've been measuring how kids who learn about their brain change their perception about drugs and alcohol. Not trying to scare them, but just trying to tell them that these are the things that are going on in the brain. It's not about morality, it's about mortality. It's the way your brain is. So Drug Street Theater, in the time of COVID, what we have done, and you guys can go to our website, uh, drugstorytheater.org, we have a film of one of our performances um, and it is about these three young girls and their journey through addiction that they created. Uh, and Shana's in it. So you can check it out. Shana, Emily, and Heather. Uh, and we are trying to get it in front of every sixth grader in the United States and their parents, especially now during the time of COVID. Because we know that the addiction rates are going up, the first time substance use is going up, the depression is going up. We got to be able to do this. COVID, unfortunately, is not an immunization against substance use. Next clip, Tom. What do we got? Well, next clip is to go off our dis on our discussion of how we see people who are struggling with addiction. If you'll remember, years ago we had a guest. Well, you had a guest, Katie Marini, who is a, a registered nurse, nurse supervisor at Beth Israel, and author of the book. The story of Red Tail Hawk, one family's journey through addiction, describing her late sister's struggle with opioids. Ben? So um, my sister struggled with heroin, started off with pills, like so many people back around 
the year 2003, 2004 when she graduated high school. It was pretty immediate. There was not a lot of support back then. There was a ton of shame. There was a huge amount of stigma, even more than there is now. So we really did not talk about it with anyone outside of the family. We didn't have a lot of places to turn to for help. We didn't really know what to do. So we just did the best we could. But we handled it as a family and we still feel that we did the best that we could with what we were given. It's a very, very hard thing to deal with. It was very hard for her to deal with. She did not know that she was going to turn into a heroin addict by taking, you know, a few pills at a graduation party or, you know, the things that teenagers do and did when these pills from the pharmaceutical companies, they are new. These are, you know, created pills that are fairly new and people didn't know a lot about them. They went out there and a lot of people were kind of blindsided. So that's how it started for her. They weren't prescription. She didn't have a prescription for them. But she said a million times, if I had known, I never would have done that if I had known. She had great dreams and aspirations. She was very beautiful. Um, we have pictures of her in the back and, um, you know, she, she couldn't get out of it. So it was a it was a huge downward spiral and there is so much more that goes along with it that happened over those 10 years that we unfortunately had to witness and learn about and go through with her because we loved her and she wanted help and she wanted to get better. So, you know, when people are crying out for that, you want to give it to them as their family. It's very hard to establish boundaries and to learn all that with them. It's not something that we knew how to handle. So she went through all of that along with, you know, the the bad relationships and the homelessness and, you know, you lose your job and you can't pass a quarry and you have to do time and you're in and out of rehab and it's very, very difficult. And then she did end up passing away in 2014 from an overdose, which was the same year that fentanyl hit the streets. We now know that's when everything changed and the overdoses got um, more and more frequent for people. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, during all that time, she always retained her love of music, her love of books. She would read huge novels. She was incredibly intelligent. She was always kind-hearted. We even found letters back and forth that she was writing to other people in rehab while she was in there trying to encourage them and support them. She would write me poems and I would write her poems back. It was something we always shared was a love of writing. It almost sounds like she was a person. Because huh. that, that is something we miss. And it's, and it's very hypocritical the way we treat opioid addiction as opposed to alcoholism like there's a podcast called the dollop and it's a great podcast it's a history slash comedy podcast and i just listened to an episode on billy carter jimmy carter's brother who was an alcoholic and during that time i just learned this is if you exclusively drank beer people wouldn't call you an alcoholic hmm. i never heard of that but he had this dark streak about him and it was encouraged because he it was he was a celebrity. He was the wild brother. And replace alcohol with opioids and you don't even people don't even picture a person anymore. They see the cliche desiccated crawling on the floor. A meme. Of lesser a meme of lesser value. That's right. They see a meme. I remember Billy Beer. Billy Beer. They mentioned that too, and that it's it's worthless to this day, but people still insist otherwise. Yeah. But I, I agree. It goes back to the days of the the um, dark alley junkies sharing needles, right? So it, it people didn't expect it to show up in the suburban neighborhoods, and it did. It did. Um, and as our past guest said, you know, nobody knew really about 
the addiction potential of these prescription pain medicines, except perhaps the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Right. Um, but the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, put out some numbers. I just want to sort of give you a sense of, of what was really happening. This was back in 2007 when these prescription pain opioids were really, really being prescribed, I must say, capriciously. I mean, nobody really knew. We were just trying to help people with their pain, you know, because pain is, is invisible but can be crippling. So if you took all the pain medicines, the Percocets and the Oxycodones, the Oxycontins and the Morphines, and you converted them to a medicine called Vicodin. And you remember the TV show House yes. like years ago? So House was, was you know, dependent on Vicodin. Um, so they converted it all and they called them Vicodin equivalents. So if you took all the basic opioid prescriptions and converted them Vicodin, enough, enough Vicodin was prescribed in 2007 so that every single one of the more than 300 million people in the United States, whether they were newborns or geriatric, every single one could have five milligrams of Vicodin every four hours for three weeks. I mean, it's this mind-blowing number. So one other way to think about it is if you take Vicodin, Vicodin is about seven millimeters long. So if you were to stack all the Vicodin end to end in a big line, it would reach from here to the moon and back and three times around the earth. I mean, just think about that as an image of how much prescription pain medicine was being prescribed. Who manufactures that much without anticipating or planning for heavy users? Yeah. Um, nobody planned for heavy users, but I'm, I'm not sure anybody knew it was going to go to this. But now look at, look at the lawsuits that are happening, right, where people are being held accountable um, and they're being held responsible because there was, there was harm done. And this is the other thing about the IM. You know, the, the IM is not a free ride. Just because it's the best you can do doesn't mean you're not going to be held responsible for it. But responsibility is a way of giving back perhaps the value that you have taken from somebody else. And that really has happened. And again, our guest, the, the first few words that she talked about was the shame the shame of having someone like this in their family, but they didn't turn their backs. They, they went through it, but there isn't always a happy ending. The I am never said you were gonna win. It just says that if you don't like what's happening, you can change it. But even that sometimes doesn't work. You know? This opioid addiction is really real. Um, and it's just really fascinating if you think about it from a brain point of view. Why do we have a brain that would even have receptor sites for opioids and for, for morphine? That, that's interesting because there's an evolution to that. And I think what it does is it goes back to these things called endorphins, which are our own natural form of morphine. 
And you get an endorphin rush when you exercise or there are other ways that you get it. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think there were receptor sites in our brains for these things, especially on a part of the brain called the brain stem, which is responsible for breathing and heart rate, all the things that are automatic. It's the most ancient part of the brain. And unfortunately, it is absolutely full of opioid receptors. So if you are overdosing on opioids, it's shutting down your ability to breathe and control your heart rate. And that's how people die from those overdoses. It's pretty, pretty. And pretty how does, how does fentanyl enter the mix? Cause there's an almost mysticism that I hear about fentanyl is like the idea that, is it true that one milligram of it can kill like four men or something like that? It, it's so potent that you have to wear gloves to even handle it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a myth, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it's 50 to 100 times more powerful than heroin. It's, it's that toxic. Um, and so you, you can imagine it's, it's mixed with all sorts of things. Um, but fentanyl just has changed the landscape. It's, it's been a, a slow progression. I mean, remember, you know, years and years and years ago, hundreds of years ago or more, people were using opium, you know, from a poppy, right? Uh, and then that, that, that was the, the opioid. And then they're opiates, you know? So they're, they're now synthetic, basically synthetic poppy. But to get to it, you're right. There is this incredible stigma, you know, and a heroin addict, an alcoholic, or someone who's addicted to weed. Weed is addictive too, guys. I mean, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's not addictive. You know, prescription pain medicines were legal too. They still are. And they're incredibly addictive. But there is something in our culture that, that says, well, those, those people are like even creepier. Mm. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I think it's the high. It's the, 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 the zombieism that the high creates, right? So they're kind of, while they're under the influence, you know, alcoholics, sometimes they're funny. Sometimes, you know, they're fun to be around, you know, the weed heads are you know harmless they're ha you know they're passive but opioid under the influence is a frightening thing to see mm -hmm. right they're nodding off they're just kind of zombie like walking the streets you know looking yep. so i think it's that it's that physical visual that people have that they're just useless just castaways like just clean the streets of them all yep yep and that is the stigma that we have been fighting for a long time and that's again why i say addiction is not about morality it's about mortality it is the way the brain is working and the opioid withdrawal is part of what really drives the addiction and the dependency because a lot of the folks after a while aren't even getting high from the right. opioids. They're just using so they're not getting sick. Because opioid withdrawal, while not life-threatening, which is really fascinating, it's not a life-threatening withdrawal most of the time. Life-threatening overdose, but the withdrawal, nausea, sweating, difficulty sleeping, muscle cramping, all these horrible automatic things 
because your brain is now craving this drug. And so we treat them. You know, we treat them with all sorts of comfort meds, but we treat them with different medicines that basically are taking control of those opioid receptors, but at our rate and our pace, so that we can give person enough medicine so they're not in withdrawal and then slowly decrease it so that they have a chance to stay sober. You know? And that's why we have some incredible medicines to keep people sober. Methadone, Suboxone, Naltrexone. These medicines that we have developed to help people with their opioid dependency. They can lead perfectly normal lives. And yet there's still a stigma getting your Suboxone prescription. It's really fascinating. Yet, as our guest was saying, brilliant people, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say, well, because you're this or that, you're going to be addicted. It can be anyone. That gets back to Shana for a moment. Shana was not a, an opioid user, but because she started so young using anything, her risk was dramatically increased. So let me just tell you some of the numbers again. If you start using drugs or alcohol after the age of 21, one out of 25 people are at risk for lifelong addiction. Think about that. After the age of 21, one in 25 are at risk. Before the age of 18, that number goes from one in 25 to one in four. It's such a wow number. One in four kids are at risk for using drugs or alcohol because of low self-esteem. That's the big risk factor, low self-esteem. And if they're the one that uses, one in four of them are at risk for lifelong addiction. I mean, it's crazy. How many kids have low self-esteem? Right? I mean, that's, that's what Shane was talking about. She was anxious, depressed. Things were happening in her, and she found a way to alleviate that real emotional pain or thought she had, and it just cascaded into something else. So we talk a lot about addiction, but what we're really looking at is the way we view people and how the way we view them can have an enormous influence on whether they're ever going to use it all Folks, if you're listening to this and you've got young kids, think about getting drugs to theater into your community because it will teach your kids about their brain and how cool their brain is. Why would you want to give away your brain? And that's one of the things we teach our kids is don't let anybody tell you, look what you lost. You didn't lose anything. You gave it away and you can take it back. That's part of what we can do for anyone who is struggling with addiction. And the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. So our kids in treatment are trying to prevent other kids using it all. They live up to one of my other phrases, contribute to society to help with your sobriety. When you give back, you are increasing your own value. The selfish gene is not at play here. What it is, is contributing to society. And whenever you do that, you increase your value. And when you increase your value, 
you just feel better. And part of it is because you're increasing oxytocin. Because we now know that oxytocin, that neurohormone of trust, that chemical, that chemical can overwhelm the dopamine from drugs and alcohol. How cool is that? As a social animal, we have a way to help ourselves by helping others. I think it's just amazing the way the brain is. Um, that's why I'm so excited. You know, the drugstore theater is around and we're still doing it. You know? Do we have time to hear Mr. Wahlberg? Why not? Let's hear Mr. Wahlberg. And if we don't have time to, to fully discuss it tonight, we can do it more next week. So let's, this is let's different hear Mr. Wahlberg. than just a bunch of people that are, are addicts. Right. And I don't even know what the what the politically correct term is. I'm not much of a politically correct guy. Right. Um, <clears throat> people, young people, old people, senior citizens, people who have never exhibited any kind of addictive nature whatsoever in any way. were turned into full blown addicts in a very short time. Yeah. By these pharmaceutical companies, yeah. right? They changed the game and they changed the face of addiction. Okay? They conspired against us mm. to fill their pockets with money, right? So, this is a very different thing. You know, that a lot of these young people, like, I got started when I was a kid, man. I had my first drink when I was eight. I was hanging in the street, yeah. homeless at 12, right? Yeah. I was out there. Right, I was, I, and so it wasn't like hard to see what was happening with me or where I was headed, right? But we're talking about young people that had no right. they not, get, great young kids, young right? athletes, beautiful. Or, or getting their tooth pulled. Yeah, exactly. So, so I don't want people to to think that you know, if you use opioids before the age of eighteen, you're at higher risk. Uh, you are. But if you use anything before the age of 18, you're at higher risk. Opioids certainly, you know, are more lethal. But weed, alcohol, nicotine, these all put you at risk because they're activating that part of the limbic system, releasing all that dopamine. You're getting all that pleasure. Your prefrontal cortex is not developed enough to think about what will happen next if I keep doing this. Remember, prefrontal cortex about the future. And so you're at such risk just because the way the brain is developing. It's not about morality. It's about mortality. So Jim Wahlberg, you know, uh, he's got a new book out. We're going to hopefully try to get him back on the show uh, to talk about it. Um, but he's a remarkable, remarkable person who has dedicated a lot of his sober life into bringing the message to other people. You know, you can do this. We're in this together. We can help. Uh, so, folks, great show as always. Thank you very much, Ben. We'll see you next week. And everyone at the Dr. Joe Show, goodbye. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, folks. Yeah.